we appear to have actual fraud, you know, various types of fraud, essentially a Ponzi scheme. And that's different from even just a normal casino, right? I mean, you can have a crypto casino and it just makes money from fees and most most traders get wrecked. But this is like a, a casino built on top of a Ponzi. Hello there. How are you all? I hope you're doing okay. I know this has been a rough week. Some of you have lost money in the whole FTX scandal, which we're going to be covering in today's show. Before I do get into that, I do want to just give a big shout out to the Swan team for the Pacific Bitcoin event. It's one of the best events I've been to in a long time. So thanks, Corey, and thanks to the team at Swan for letting me be part of it. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got the ever-amazing Lynn Alden back on the show, where we're going to be doing a bit of an autopsy on everything which happened with the FTX situation. Okay, what is there to say? I mean, it's just, it's been rather a depressing week to go through this again. Uh, when I first got into Bitcoin, I heard a lot about what happened with Mt. Gox. I even made a series of shows about this. And this was a big moment in the history of Bitcoin. Some people felt that maybe even Bitcoin wouldn't survive. And now this year, I feel like we've had almost three Mt. Gox situations. We've had Luna fail, we've had three Arrows Capital fail, and we've now had the FTX failure. Now, these aren't Bitcoin failures to me, but they affect Bitcoin. These are frauds, and these are frauds perpetuated with scammy crypto projects. And I'm not really sure what's going to happen next. Personally, I'm just going to hunker down and focus on Bitcoin. But we have to be cognizant of what's gone on here and how we can protect ourselves from the future, because Bitcoin is so important to us and so important to the world that we have to keep moving forward. We have to keep getting this technology into the hands of the right people. So I feel pretty angry about everything that's happened. I feel pretty depressed about it, to be honest. But at the same time, I know what the mission is, and I'm going to be focused on continuing my job, which is to spread the knowledge of Bitcoin. So a bit of a long intro. I apologize for that, but I just wanted to get some thoughts out there. Lynn was probably the best person to get on this topic. Well, she's probably the best person to get on any topic. I think if I ask her to cover football in the UK, she'd nail it. But for me, it was a great thing to get into with Lynn to just try and understand of how this all happened, how a 30-year-old managed to hoodwink investors and an entire industry and regulators. So I'm not going to say I hope you enjoy this one, but I do hope you get value from it. And if you've got any questions about it, you know you can get in touch. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And yes, I will get back to you as soon as I can. Hi, Lynn. How's it going? Good. Good to see you in person again. I didn't yeah. enjoy that last one. Didn't think we did a remote one. Oh, that's right. I yeah. hated it. I mean, I love always talking to you, but yeah. after it's like, daddy. No more remote. No more remote shows. <laughs> we just accept it if we can't yeah. do it. Um, well, what are you going to talk about this time? It's a slow news week. Eh? So, yeah, not much uh, has happened this week. Yeah. So, I mean, I was at a conference. I didn't pay attention to anything. Well, there was some big news today uh, in, the, in the football space. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, I think we need to talk about FTX uh, and everything, blow, everything blowing up, what it means, why it happened. I think there's going to be, well, firstly... There's going to be some people damaged by this, and uh, we need to talk about that and talk about what we can learn from this and how things improve in the future. Um, but also, I think some people want to understand what happened, why it happened, how it happened. Um, there's a lot to take in. Uh, how, how have you been taking the whole weekend? Well, mostly it's a big news week, and it's, it's challenging because we're at the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, yep. uh, which was awesome, by the way. I'll give that a plug. 
But um, you while, making a, you making an excuse ahead of time? Well, no, I'm just saying <laughs> we're at this conference all the time. They were following this crazy news event, and basically, it's it, the funny thing is how rapidly it changes. I mean, if we had this if we had this interview a few hours ago, we talked we talked about some different things. I mean, basically, hour after hour, day after day, new crazy details and events keep happening. But the the short answer is it appears to be massive fraud. Uh, you know, I think one thing we can do ahead of time is to say everything is alleged or appears to be because obviously the lawyers have to go through this, yeah. you know, in detail. But obvious scams are obvious now, now that the documents are out, now that, you know, things are less opaque than they were before. And basically it's like you have this offshore exchange that had un, like un, uh, inappropriate connections with their trading arm uh, and we're using, you know, appear, appear to be using customer funds to finance their trading, and we're using their own token created out of thin air as collateral for for loans. Okay. Um, and so we appear to have actual fraud, you know, various types of fraud, essentially a Ponzi scheme. And that's different from even just a normal casino, right? I mean, if you can have a crypto casino and it's just, it just makes money from fees, and most most traders get wrecked, but this is like a, a casino built on top of a Ponzi. So this is even this is like you know among the worst of the worst. Yeah, I, I'm. I can't figure out if this is a. It's definitely a scam. I can't figure out if it's a scam whereby they set out on purpose to scam and defraud people to personally walk away with a huge amount of money, hide a huge amount of money, or it's a situation that's become a scam because something's got out of control. They've tried to grow a business too quickly. They've tried to use very strange kind of financing methods. And in doing so, they've got themselves into a sticky situation and tried to dig themselves out of it by doing some kind of weird financial engineering. It feels like the latter. I know maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it's a scam, whatever, but it doesn't, it feels like it's something that got out of control. Yeah, I certainly don't think they intended to blow up, especially by being so cozy with regulators and politicians and public. You know, a lot of that was clearly like legal defense. And I think the way we can look at it is, you know, because now there's leaked documents of what they kind of pitched to investors. You know, some of those documents were sketchy, like, you know, earn high returns with no risk and it's like bolded. And they're explaining why like, there's virtually no risk for these high returns, which is a giant red flag. What were they saying? Because it's based, were they basing the business on trading fees though? Yeah, they're basically saying, well, in the beginning it was it was Alameda. Yeah. And they're basically saying that, you know, our trading algorithms are so good and we can make money in both both market directions as a market maker. And therefore, you know, our like if you loan us money at 15% annually, there's almost no risk. That was their that was some of the early documents. Okay. They're now surfacing. Um, so from the beginning, there was red flags. Um, and not all of those were not all those documents were publicly knowable, right? They were, you know, to VCs and, and financiers and things like that. And so it started out as that that trading arm, and then that was like 2018, and then 2019 they launched FTX, which is the exchange. And it appears that a large purpose of the exchange was essentially to provide low cost capital to Alameda, which are supposed to be separate entities, um, but it's clear now that they were and. It was kind of understood all along by a lot of traders and observers that there's some sort of probably uncouth connections between the two. But this, you know, as more details come out, you see how intertwined they appear to be and how kind of FTX was really almost like a just like a, a, a way, like a, a mechanism to extend Alameda 
and and their trading activities and their and their leveraging. So do Alameda was the trading arm that existed prior to FTX. Yes. Do we know when they were established? I believe 2018. 2018. And do we know much about their trading record up until that point? They they were generally held in high regard or do we do we now have suspicions that it was never making any money? I mean, I assume they probably were making money, but it's it's now unclear. I mean, yeah. if you can't trust the books, it, then it becomes kind of speculation. And of course, there are people that might have followed the, you know, they made it their whole thing, almost like private investigators to follow exactly. But I think from early on, you know, they had some sophisticated trading that can work temporarily. But, you know, you, especially once you start printing your own token and then leveraging that token, you start building a more and more fragile Ponzi. So I think it, it very much got out of hand, but it was, it was there were red flags in those documents from the beginning, at least for those who had the access to see those documents, which were not very public documents. Right. I, think, I think Alameda started as a market maker and then became directional at some point in like 2021, and from what I can see. But market makers make money whatever <laughs> That's meant direction. To be completely yeah. neutral, yeah. Yeah, completely neutral. So you may just make a very small part on every trade. Mm-hmm. But you still have to manage your risk appropriately because yeah. you can get caught off with a one-sided position if things change rapidly. You, right, you okay. take near-term, sometimes one-directional bets while you're making those markets, even if you're not structurally trying to make a long-term bet. And the rumor is what, the $8 billion hole? It, it's more than that now. So in their bankruptcy okay. document, I think it's they, they tick the box between 10 and 50. For Alameda or FTX? Uh, they all wound up together. Am I right in that, Lynn? Are they all wound up together? It keeps changing. But yes, they, multiple entities have now filed bankruptcy. I think it's like 132 in, entities or something. Yeah, including FTX US, which was, again, supposed to be separate and regulated differently. That's And, you know, during this, as this was playing out in, in many now deleted tweets, you know, first they were saying funds are safe. And then they were kind of admitting that funds were not safe. They were like, well, FTX is still safe. But then even FTX US is, is doing bankruptcy. So, you know, kind of across entities. Um, it's all intertwined. And if, there's actually shots of their organizational chart and it's an absolute mess if you look at it. It's, like all, it. I'll have a it's look, almost yeah. purposely obfuscated the way it looks. So do we know what the chain of events are, that what, what the speculation is on the chain of events that led to the collapse? Because the collapse was the speed of the collapse from something that was two weeks ago maybe, we had no idea, or maybe there was some suspicions, but... You know, valued at $32 billion, FTX. Is this it? Yeah, there's, and, a, there's, there's the organizational chart. I, mean, I don't right. even know how you look at that. Yeah, well, actually, okay. Imagine so, keeping track of that. That looks, do you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of uh, Vitalik's Ethereum roadmap. <laughs> More or less. Yeah. So, hold on. What are, the, what are all these fucking companes? He, he had exposure around, to over 100 companies. What's from Alameda Research, North Wireless Dimension. What the hell? Alameda Research Cake... I, mean, I can't even read most of it. I kind of want to. Yeah, I can't read that, Danny. Yeah, I want to get dug in. I want to dig into that and find out what it is. But why have they got? Why have they got that many companies? I think there was a lot of. Um, they had to domicile in lots of different locations and that kind of stuff. So a lot of them were sort of like Alameda, US, Alameda, wherever else. But um, I, I don't know the answer. To why they also that. apparently did a lot of venture stuff, right? And, right. and they're going to find out which one of those are maybe real venture versus which ones are kind of shell companies. I mean, this is all, like, again, it's changing hour by hour. This, this could, you know, some of this will probably be obsolete by the time this, this publishes, because that's how fast moving this all Do is. Do a Twitter search, see what the latest thing in the last hour. Yeah. I mean, the, the last thing I just saw, like I said, they've said they've got um, zero Bitcoin on the balance sheet, but they've got 1.3 billion in liabilities. Mm-hmm. But they 1. did also 1.4 billion. 1. 1.4 billion in Bitcoin liabilities, which means a 
I mean, what, what does that compare to Mt. Gox? That's like about three times. Was Mt. Gox about 400 million, wasn't it? I think about 400 million. I could be wrong. Um, but I also read there's 16,000 wrapped Bitcoin that now can't be accessed. Yeah, on Solana. They're, they're, and also wrapped Ether, I think. But yeah, there's some wrapped entities. The problem, a, a big challenge with, with DeFi as, as it exists now is that it's very reliant on, ironically, custodial entities. So you have <laughs> custodial stable coins and you have custodial you know, wrapped Bitcoin, wrapped whatever. And then you'll have these protocols that, you know, decentralized exchanges and, and pseudo decentralized liquidity leveraging providers, but you're, you know, the core of the system is often still these, these custodial assets. And so if FTX holds the keys to these wrapped, you know, Bitcoin in, in wrapped around, you know, under wrapped by Solana, if they lose the keys, then that's a useless token. And so they're currently trading at a major discount based on the you know, non-zero chance that among these bankruptcy proceedings, someone will find the keys and it'll be opened. But at the current time, you, you know, it's a problem. So I was trying to understand, did you find that Mt. Gox number? Uh, no, I'm not. Right. There's, also, there's also, I mean, one of the recent news is there's a hack. So someone, yeah. someone hacked it, you know. 600 million. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the, the number keeps changing. That was the first number I saw. Then someone said over a billion and that, you know, well, could be all different by. You it's know. a crazy story. Yeah. I, saw, I saw that and immediately also saw that Sam was on a private, on his private jet flying to Argentina. I was like, is he going to Le Bitconf? <laughs> well, and then that was countered and people said, no, we still see him on the Bahamas. And so again, this, this could be different. We'll probably know where he is in a couple of days, but it, I've, I've seen competing rumors on social media. So I wouldn't speculate on that personally. But. So the weird thing about FTX is I thought they were just a very successful business. I remember when Binance kind of came out of nowhere and very quickly became a huge exchange that yeah. almost almost every trader I know was using it. Traders didn't tend to use Coinbase and some use Kraken and you know, Gemini. That tend to be more like retail spot buyers. But it felt like FTX came very quickly out the the um, out the gates. And they were able to spin up new markets very quickly. I've never used, have you used it? No. No, I've never used it, but I, I was aware they constantly spun up these new markets, these new futures markets or these. And it seemed to me like they understood traders. And I, and a lot of people I know used it. So I was like, yeah, when I saw that and then I saw they had like Tom Brady, I was like, okay, this is just a, a successful business that is uh, making a lot of money on trading fees. And so I don't understand because my assumption is they probably were doing quite well to begin with, probably had some good user sign-up numbers, some good trading numbers, probably some good numbers to raise funds and grow a business. I don't understand where it's gone wrong. Is, has it gone wrong because they've tried to protect Alameda? Or has it gone wrong because I don't know where it's gone wrong? It appears to be, yes, they, they probably try to protect Alameda. That's at least the current evidence I've seen. Right. We, if we kind of back up to how we got here. So, yeah. you know, Touching back on the macro for a second, because a lot of these things start with macro. You have rising liquidity environments and you have falling liquidity environments. And most of these, like, you know, let's let's say the all these, you know, Bitcoin and altcoin like booms that happen, because they happen generally at the same time. When you have a rise in liquidity environment, that's where they they've all occurred. They've all occurred when money's flowing, money's cheap, uh, risk assets in general are doing well. And then when that rolls over. The economy's slowing, Federal Reserve's tightening. There's, there's various reasons why this can happen. And you have this like declining liquidity environment. All these Ponzi's break. And then even Bitcoin takes a price hit as capital goes out and euphoria goes away. 
And the difference is, you know, Bitcoin has been through four of these and it, you know, keeps making higher highs and higher lows, at least so far, you know, and other ones go through one or two cycles and then they're just, you know, they're, they're dead in Bitcoin terms pretty much forever. That, that's historically mm. what's happened with thousands of these projects. And so we've, you know, ever since, you know, roughly mid 2021, we've been in a declining liquidity environment and it really accelerated here in 2022. And so all these speculations, all these risk on things start pulling out. And then when that gets pressured, you find out who's, to quote Warren Buffett, swimming naked. Who's, yeah. who's more levered in an opaque way than maybe market would have thought. And so for example, there were a bunch of us pointing out Luna mm-hmm. and, and Terra, that, that intertwined system as a gigantic vulnerability. And I wrote about that a lot. That was the good thing about that among the terrible things is that it was transparent. And so you could be like, no, this is literally, we can map this out. This is a problem. And a bunch of people did. Then you have Celsius, which was well known as being sketchy for a long time. And there are a lot of people kind of calling that out. It's a little bit more opaque, obviously, than something like Luna, but it was pretty well telegraphed. The one that's, so when Luna goes down, all these things fall. Celsius is heavily relying on their token. That's getting pressured. And then the surprise to a lot of people was three hours capital, because uh, that was more opaque. And they were considered smart money. And they went down and that hurt a lot of lenders. And you had contagion in the whole industry. All this, all this intertwined leverage was more intertwined than people thought, because again, a lot of it's opaque. Um, and then you had you know, FTX and Alameda come in and, and provide liquidity to some of these. And I think a lot of people rightly pointed out that you know, he was positioning it like, oh, I wanna save the industry, I wanna be altruistic, but really he's intertwined with them too. And so they want to mitigate contagion so it doesn't huh. bring them down. But then the question is, you know, how, you know, people obviously, again, because of opaque balance sheets, you couldn't be sure how deep their pockets are. Are they like on the verge of solvency or are they just, you know, they medium or are they as deep as they claim, right? And so a lot of people I think rightly pointed out that they're probably doing this to save themselves. Um, and so there was like this, you know, this kind of lull in the market where it's not making new lows, there's no more blowups or at least big blowups. And then it was, it was leaked that um, what their balance sheet looked like, uh, Alameda's balance sheet. Yeah. Uh, I think Coindesk uh, had a, had a yeah. report on that. And what it showed was that a lot of their, so you have assets and you have liabilities. And of course the difference between those is your actual equity. And the problem was that a lot of their assets were basically make-believe. There are these liquid tokens where they, their own token, you know, the FTX yeah. token, they can print billions of it, give themselves most of it, sell a little bit to the market and have that trade and have like a, you know, quote unquote trading price that they can probably manipulate on their own exchange to some mm-hmm. degree. Uh, and Sam would post his own like buys of his own token every week, kind of almost like encouraging retail to keep buying. It's so obvious in hindsight. So, so once that once that leaked, I mean, a lot of people were like, this is this is a giant red flag. Because not only that, if that, if that equity ever, if they ever had to sell that, they would not be able to because once you start selling you know, 100 billion of that, yeah. the price is now so crushed, good luck offloading the other billions. So yeah. you don't really have the value that you claim you do. And then, and then they also held other tokens that they didn't control, but they were just, you know, they were fluff, yeah. right? They're, they're just fluff. Many of them were down significantly. And so people were like, wait a second, if this is their actual balance sheet, you know, it's like, well, how can you verify? Do they have another balance sheet? And, you know, so people could still not be 100% sure, but that was like a, basically Red a major, a major vulnerability was now pretty clear. And that's when a lot of people started analyzing that a lot more. And then, you know, Binance comes in 
because they held some of those FTX tokens. From, it, was it like 400 million, 500 million? Something like 500 million. Yeah. How yeah. did they get those tokens? Did they, they, they had previously invested in FTX. Right. I think they were one of the very early investors. Yeah. So, okay. So they backed FTX and therefore they in had. Exchange for yeah. The token. yeah. Okay. And then so they started um, selling their tokens uh, with, with CZ coming out and saying, you know, like just for prudence, we're going to sell these. Uh, you know, we don't want to repeat a Luna. Like, you know, simultaneously adding to selling pressure while also using language to show that you're concerned about it and show risk, which makes other people pile on, shorts pile on, mm. other people sell. And then Alameda came out, the CEO, and she said, we'll buy all those tokens from you at $22. Is that Caroline? Yes. Yeah. By the way, I'd never heard of her until I saw her up on Twitter and I thought it was a child. She's a, she's a young woman. Yeah, but she looked... Very young and She's, very inexperienced. Their team's pretty young, yeah. Yeah, but for very inexperienced to be running that size of a book. Yeah. I mean, yes. yeah, and saying some pretty crazy things. So that's, yeah, and that's another red flag when you go on Twitter and say, we'll buy it all at 22, because you could have done that privately. Yeah. You know, if you want to do an OTC transaction, you can do that privately. To put it out publicly shows you're trying to like build confidence. And that was kind of a major technical support level. You know, there was yeah. kind of nothing but air below 22. So then now that becomes a line in the sand. And once that, you know, obviously the shorts pile on, once that broke through 22, started crashing, that's when it's all messed up now. Because if, you know, going back to that balance sheet, when your equities are like entirely made up of like these make-believe tokens with no real liquidity, if they go down, you're done. That's, that's like your happened. McDonald's analogy that we yes. spoke about yes. at the conference. Yes, and then you're insolvent, and then so that's the that's the Ponzi part. But then when you actually you know a, after obviously the you know the post mortem people are diving in, they're saying okay, well FTX had a back tour to Alameda. They were you know they're lending customer deposits to Alameda, and so you know FTX customers at risk. It's not just Alameda going down, and it, they basically showed how how bad it all was. So there are a lot of people that knew it was bad, but basically it's like as bad as you thought it might be or were concerned it might be, it was worse than that. It was just outright worse. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe but they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients in all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you will want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up is Wasabi. Now, Wasabi is what I'm using to keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. Or the magic happens automatically in the background, which was a massive UX improvement. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. 
privacy is something I've been taking a lot more seriously recently and Wasabi 2.0 makes it so easy. To find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, we have the Texas Blockchain Council. Now on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council is putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. This event will be two days of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. Day two is where we will hear from top policy leaders in the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives and CFTC commissioners. So what more could you ask for? Now, I'm not just promoting this. I will be attending the event in Austin, hanging out with my Texas Bitcoin buddies and interviewing a very important person. So make sure you book your ticket and check out this event. And also, if you come along, come say hello. It'd be good to meet some of you. To find out more, please head over to TexasBlockchainSummit.org. That is TexasBlockchainSummit.org. Also, today we have Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying now. It's a buying time. We're holding right. I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini is also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. So the big hole in Alameda's balance sheet is basically because they were shit at trading. Well, I think there's some speculation that they were more heavily hit by like the Luna stuff than they have been public about. Okay, so they could have been hit quite heavily by Luna. What was the size of the Luna? Uh, well, I think well, it was, it was it tens got, of billions of Tens times. of billions. Okay, so they were hit by that potentially to whatever number mm-hmm. um so but potentially it's similar to three arrows maybe over lev it seems like a lot of these funds were massively leveraged it's almost like everyone thought we were going to 100 150,000 and when we didn't they've all kind of got blown up by this yep and that's also it's like how do you get so big so fast well print your own token and then leverage against it yeah that's how you do it but of course, it's a super fragile, fraudulent model, essentially. So if that tide ever goes out, as fast as you came up, you're now vulnerable just as fast on the downside. Yes. And another thing we're touching on is that in addition to raising capital all those ways, they raised traditional FTX raised traditional VC capital, something like two billion dollars, uh, you know, through multiple rounds, yep. uh, up to a thirty-two billion dollar company valuation. And it included like absolute blue chip investors, Sequoia. Sequoia, yeah. Yeah, Sequoia, uh, one of Singapore's two like essentially sovereign wealth funds, basically state-owned investment corporations, um, uh, Canadian pension funds, Mm -hmm. uh, Paradigm. So these these major pools of capital. And a lot of times that industry works circular. They're like, well, if Sequoia did it, you know. We want it. And then so, and then of course there's documents that there is a, you know, this was going viral that Sequoia had written about them. And it was a, a rather embarrassing document. They were basically fully just embracing the the personality that was being cultivated and, and clearly didn't do the due diligence they should have 
And and when you're investing that much, you have a lot more capability right. to do deep due diligence of course. than people just on the sidelines looking at this opaque situation and saying, yeah, it looks sketchy, but you don't know how sketchy it is until you actually look at the finances. Can you see how much Sequoia are in for? It was about 200 million, I think. Something like that. It's 200 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's incredible that you can invest 200 million without performing proper due, due diligence. That's yeah. the thing. And it's one of those things where that's actually a small percentage of their money. So it's not like they're wrecked or anything, but it's reputational damage because it, Startups, startups fail all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's no shame in investing in a startup nope. that doesn't work out. That's the whole point. You're investing in experimental technologies. What is embarrassing is to get this far, a $32 billion valuation company, and it's basically an offshore casino built on a Ponzi scheme that it also just seems to have outright fraud in it and just, just clear lack of due diligence oversight from the people that, that had the money to have access to the documents. And then there are other VCs that came out and basically said that, you know, they were, they were in talks to potentially invest. And when they asked for more information, they were told like, no. So they would then say, well, we can't then, whereas other ones clearly went through with it. They just said, you know, we believe you. It's, it's a wonder why they didn't just let Alameda fold. Why, t- why go to, because it's very clear that multiple people at risk of going to jail. Yes. Not just for a few years, potentially decades. And we talked about, um, with Preston earlier, we talked about um, with Bernie Madoff, 150-year sentence for 68 billion, I think, that size of that Ponzi. I mean, I don't know what this is, 10, if, 20, yeah, 30. If you lose rich people's money, that's when you're, you're generally going to jail for a long time, usually. It, yeah, and I don't, I don't know if it's 150 years because it's 68 billion. I don't know if, like, if the amount of money affects the time, but you have to be aware, if you're involved at this level of crime, you're potentially facing a number of years, maybe decades in jail. Yes. But could they not just let Alameda fold? Just, okay, it's fold, it's failed. Would that have taken FTX down with it? It seems like it, it again, there's going to be a lot of postmortems on this because yeah. we can't even fully trust the books we see yet because this is all recent. But the problem is that Alameda held a lot of the FTX token. And so that would have all been liquidated anyway. So FTX's token would have been just wiped out. Right. So it's, it's unlikely you can completely nuke one right. without the other. Um, but obviously the, the, the legal risk is when FTX goes down because that's when you, all your customer deposits, especially if you've been rehypothecating them and re-leveraging them, that's when they're at risk. Do you think, did they get away with a lot of this because they were based out in the Bahamas? Is it too opaque? Oh yes, I mean, they're, they're obviously doing jurisdictional shopping um, and that's, so they they were not regulated, regulated to the same degree that they would in, in the U S and that doesn't mean that U S regulations are perfect. I mean, they're, I, you know, I'd be the first to be critical of some of these big, like going casinos that are onshore. Uh, but generally what you won't see is like a casino built on a Ponzi at least. So offshore, when you're, when you're shopping for jurisdiction, you can basically pick, pick a jurisdiction that's just not going to really look into you that much. And they're just like happy to have you there. And, you know, they get some revenue out of it and, look the other way god so what in terms of looking at this in terms of the rest of like the bitcoin market the crypto market when you looked at say when they bailed out BlockFi and voyager that to you is them just trying to delay things because they would have been caught up in the same contagion well back then their their balance sheet wasn't fully you know known to the public yet like the yeah. way it was after the leak which is pretty recent um, so I think clearly they didn't want more and more liquidations going on. And each of these lenders had different levels of, of problems. So for example, some of the, some of the dumbest lenders were, lenders were outright insolvent 
Yes. Whereas other ones were more careful with their lending practices. So they weren't necessarily insolvent, but they were not not liquid enough to withstand the sheer amount of bank runs that they were having. So well, some, yeah, so Zach said at BlockFi, when we spoke to him, he said uh, their main issue was duration matching. Yeah, that's essentially, why, yeah. essentially liquidity. If that's correct, that's essentially a liquidity problem. Yeah. Uh, so that's why, I mean, that's why they were the ones, one of the ones to go they were able to get through that summer event because they were not as, you know, Voyager, for example, if I if I remember correctly, they didn't uncollateralize loans. Yeah, 650 whereas, million. Whereas BlockFi, is, for example, was least collateralized. So it's a difference between an outright, a solvency risk is worse than a liquidity risk. Uh, both are not great, but obviously, you know, liquidity means you can eventually, uh, you know, potentially, you know, make everything whole again, um, whereas solvency is a, a major problem. So if you're having a liquidity problem, but you're solvent, you can sometimes get a loan it will then make you more liquid. And so you can avoid that whole like freezing withdrawal thing. And so that, yeah, so basically the, the weakest and dumbest lenders went down first. And then the ones that had some degree of better risk management in place, they're the ones they were able to get through it. But if, if the industry itself is so intertwined and so bad, it can bring everything down. Well, that's another thing. It feels like everyone was lending everyone else money. Yes. Throughout the system. Pretty much. And I guess this this is how you get the contagion, right? Yes. People one, yeah. Um, Danny, in terms of uh, BlockFi, we know they got a line of credit which would enable them to be able to um, uh, deal with their liquidity issue. Yeah. Um, but they said they had uh, they were able to support customer funds, um, and their issue is purely liquidity. But they have now completely paused withdrawals, and I've heard nothing more from them. Do we know if? Uh, they kept their uh, customer assets separate, or they went into cust- They became custodied by FTX. Do we know anything about that? I th- I would only be guessing, but I th- I'm pretty sure they kept their customer assets. Okay, so I think the issue for BlockFi is they just don't have that line of credit to call on anymore. Uh, I think they then lent a lot of money to Alameda afterwards. Who BlockFi did? I, th- I believe I I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think huh. so. Fuck sake! All right. If you look much into the politi- political aspect of this, um, we've seen that Sam was become a big donor to the Democrat Party. Yeah, one of the biggest in the country. $40 million? Was he the that, sixth? Well, that was just on the midterms. I think he's actually mid-terms. put more in that. Has he? Have you seen that um, chart that's come out, the relationships between him, his father, and Gensler? No. Oh, my God. I've got to say, ah. Oh. Look, look up. They all have those MIT relationships. So there's yeah. a lot of allegations. Yeah, we'll see what comes of it. What do you make of what was happening here with the support of the Democrat Party, like the lobbying and? Well, so some of it could be ideological. Um, other other parts could be to you know he wanted to find a jurisdiction. He wanted to you know basically get in on on being regulated in such a way. I guess you know as lawyers look through all this, they'll find chats and maybe they'll learn more. Um, but it clearly was a, a regulatory arbitrage play. He wanted to kind of use regulation against his competition while not having regulators go at him very hard. And that's that's obviously a, you know, a, a strategic play, a sketchy one, but that's what he was doing. Um, and he was, you know, he could, he was able to buy, you know, like, you know, just politicians. He was able to buy celebrities. <laughs> um, he was able to, you know, just basically have, have good connections with all these regulators and so it was, you know, I, it was an emerging threat really on the industry. It's, it's strange how a lot of people have said there were these red flags now, but they got away with it for so long. I mean, there were a number of people, a lot of the Bitcoin maxis, if anything, were, were the ones 
pretty critical of this. Actually, Pierre. Let me pull this. Yeah, to Pierre, 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 yeah Pierre called it. Pierre called it perfectly. He, he was very aggressive. Corey was very aggressive on it. Corey scared, like I said, I, <laughs> Corey scares me. I'm like, I got to make sure I got all my ducks in a row with Corey about. <laughs> yeah, this was back in June. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Okay, we're just going to read this tweet out for anyone listening. Easiest prediction I'll ever make. One, fiat brain bozos try to fractional reserve banking with Bitcoin and get wrecked. Two, SBF fancies himself as a savvy JPM, bails out the bozos, you are here. Which Three, which only encourages more bad risk-taking. SBF needs a bailout, but he can't print a Bitcoin. Oh, that's retweeting the Voyager. This morning we announced a definitive agreement with Alameda Ventures for a $200 million cash USDZ resolver and 15,000 BTC revolver. I mean, he's nailed it. Yep, really perfect. Huh. So what do you think is going to come out of this? Because this is terrible, and it's terrible for a bunch of people. It's terrible for the industry. It puts us back. Do you th- Let's talk about the regulatory side of things. Do you think this is going to put a bigger spotlight on us? Well, it already is, to be honest. But how do you think things are going to change? Do you think we're going to become more regulated? I know it's not a popular thing to say around these parts, but is that a good thing? I think we can start by defining what us is. You know, I, I think, for mm-hmm. example... We don't identify with FTX nope. and that that whole contingent. Um, so the way I would look at it is that there's obviously going to be more scrutiny and more at least attempts at regulation. We'll see what can get through kind of a divided government at this point. But there's going to be more scrutiny. And, you know, a lot of these are still essentially what they are is unregistered securities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and kind of hidden in this whole week was the SEC, you know, they won a court case against a, a token. Yeah. yeah. Um, about it essentially being a security. And it, it had, now it sets pretty significant precedent for anything that had an ICO, um, which was any, obvious for people to look at the Howey test, um, but it's it's now a legal precedent that pushes that forward. And so it is, I think there's going to be more securities regulation on, on exchanges and on issuers. I think that's number one. Bitcoin though, obviously doesn't pass the Howey test. It's obviously not a security. Gary Gensler has been very clear on that. And it's, it's, it's just, it's pretty straightforward. I think the, so the good news for Bitcoin in the near term, or I mean in the long term, is that Ponzi is built around Bitcoin that have nothing to do, do with Bitcoin, but then kind of like, you know, affinity scan Bitcoin and get a lot of the media and people in the public to kind of equate them all together, you know? Mm-hmm. It's good for those to die or you just be impaired and not be as big as they are. That's, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the risk is that regulators going after that stuff can use that as an opportunity to also kind of where they can lump Bitcoin into it. Right. So uh, this is obviously not great for Bitcoin in the near term because it's it's it's, it's been bad for price, obviously. Um, but I think longer term, it's it's one of those. This is like a phase that Bitcoin had to go through because these Ponzi's and these these altcoins and these seniorage have to keep dying for capital to find where it should be. Which is, Does it not just push these uh, altcoin projects out of the jurisdiction of the U.S.? So partially it can do that, but I think multiple jurisdictions now are obviously going to be more scrutiny of it. I mean, they, these countries jurisdictional shop for a reason. And two, the United States can extend that to, you know, it's, it's got a lot of influence with, with other countries and can say, you know, like if you host this, that's going to be a problem with us, right? Mm. So you can you can extend your your net that way. And then, but also it, it it's not just the regulatory front, it's that it kills kind of the reputation among these things, among traders and among institutions and things like that. Um, 
So the way I've described it is, you know, we've had this 40 year cycle of just like lower and lower interest rates and higher and higher valuations. And then it was the crescendo was obviously COVID lockdowns, print a ton of money um, with zero interest rates. Uh, you kind of hit the crescendo of that bubble. I find it, you know, I keep joking, like famous last words, because I, I find it hard to believe that there'll be a, a crypto bubble bigger than the one we just saw, because there's so many, so many macro factors together. And then pro- you can't imagine that the regulatory framework's not going to get worse for these types of things. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to imagine a bigger bubble, but maybe we'll be laughing about that statement in four <laughs> or five years, you know, three years. But, you know, I, it's this might have been the high watermark for just the sheer the sheer volume and sheer scale uh, in, of some of these scams and, and fake seniors and things like that. I, by the way, I was surprised that library token was still going. I think that's one of the first shit coins I bought about four or five years ago. As I remember, was that the one where it was like a YouTube? Yeah, it's like a decentralized YouTube that, kind no, of thing. No, no, but on the blockchain. On the, <laughs> yeah. But uh, so what is the impact of their them losing that case? Were they fine but are still able to operate? Or are they not, they're, not allowed, they're only allowed to sell library tokens to accredited investors? What's the outcome of that? So I've not dived deep into that, but they, they have to rethink all of their their situation because they're basically blocked from doing what they were doing. But again, I didn't go deep into that one because it's just so much this yeah. week. But, but tr- traditionally with securities, is, is it a case of if something is a security, you have to be an accredited investor? Is it that kind of thing? Well, you don't have to be necessarily an accredited investor, but it means you have to, when you, essentially what securities law is, it's not, it's not supposed to really pick what is what investments have merit. It's meant to enforce proper disclosures. Okay. So if a company goes public, it's like, okay, what's the board of directors who, you know, how much of the security do all the insiders and, and investors own? Um, what are you have to disclose risks, you know, and it has to build past kind of a legal merit. And that's a that's a pretty expensive process. So it kind of it sets kind of a threshold, a minimum threshold for you have to be kind of big to go public. Right. Um, and so basically by doing unregistered securities, you you go around that whole procedure. And so you can have these opaque tokens, uh, you don't fully know the rules, you don't know who owns what. And and so that's, I think, what they're going to increasingly be clamping down on. And essentially, most virtually anything that does an ICO ends up looking a lot like a security. Mm. And then if you didn't, if you didn't use the normal security procedures, that's risky. And there's a couple of phases there. So some of the ones that got hit early on by using their ICO for American investors. That was like an obvious. That was like the first thing you go oh, go against. The second thing you can do is do an ICO, but only for accredited investors or offshore investors. But then you bring the token to an exchange in America or another country that has securities laws, and you can still sell them to retail that way, even though it wasn't the ICO. And that's the part where exchanges are potentially liable as um, as sellers of unregistered securities for selling unregistered securities. Yeah. So there's different there's different layers here where they've clamped down on some more than others. Um, and so that, that's where we're at. Okay, so how does this play out? Because will the SEC have to take every single token to court or to set the precedent, kind of put out a warning to all uh, other tokens that they you know, are potentially uh, securities and to the exchanges to start to self-regulate? How does this tend to work? So if you set a big precedent, it generally prevents a lot of big entities from doing it in the future. So for example, if you sue someone for selling an ICO to Americans... You know, all these other ICOs are going to think twice and usually not sell to Americans. They're going to sell offshore. They're going to sell to credit investors. So that's one. So, and so, for example, if you were to sue a large exchange or even a small, just basically, if you were to sue an onshore exchange for selling unregistered securities, um, it would make the other ones 
quickly reevaluate the tokens they have in their platform. And the thing that's still in the gray zone is that if a certain thing looks like a security and it's probably security, but hasn't been officially called a security, you know. It's probably a duck. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> basically, you know, exchange XYZ can say, well, we're selling this asset. You know, we don't know if it's a security or not. You haven't. I think the biggest counterpoint to the SEC from these exchanges can be you've given us no clarity in how to even move forward. You can't, there's no, there's no real kind of mechanism to apply really uh, to like be a security or what you should do. So they've kind of, the government's almost kind of left it purposely unclear and opaque as they, and they've used enforcement to go after these things. And I think their, I don't want to speak for them, but I think their perspective is like, you have to be proactive. I mean, it's, if it's if it looks like a security, you should assume it's a security. Whereas exchanges almost want to do the opposite, where if it's not, obviously, if it's not like labeled officially a security, they want to almost be like, well, we don't know. It's, you know, we want to sell it anyway. And hmm. I think what's what could complicate it going forward is that these, these exchanges might have to be registered with both the SEC and the commodities trading. Regulators, right? So the CFTC, what because of Bitcoin, and then the SEC because of these securities. Essentially, yeah, Bitcoin, maybe you know, Litecoin, things that don't necessarily directly pass the Howey test. You can right. have a, you can have a small number of commodities or digital commodities, and then a very large number of digital currencies, digital securities, um, and you know, that's that could be a a market that people play in. And is this all part of like Gensler's roadmap to get us towards an ETF? Does this all play in as part of it? Well, I mean, I don't want to speculate on his roadmap, but he's he's they they keep citing exchanges yeah. as their reason. He and wants it, jurisdiction over them. I think so. And there's and it does seem to be obviously a jurisdictional battle between the SEC and 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 commodities, but it's also, you know, there's been kind of pushback showing that that in the United States a lot of the price discovery happens with those futures anyway. And those are already regulated. So hmm. it's kind of like almost like the SEC's argument there has not necessarily the best merit. Um, but it might be used as like a placeholder while they go after whatever else they're going after here. Hmm. So it's unclear. And it's also, I mean, you know, he, he, he's only got a certain amount of time to do whatever he's going to do. Right. So we'll, we'll kind of know shortly. And now he's, now he's potentially going to be investigated by some of these connections. So, I, and I have no clue how that's going to turn out. Is he? But these, there have been some Congress people that have been critical of Gensler and they might pursue something. Now, again, it could be complete without merit. Yeah, yeah. It could go nowhere. I have no idea. But it's 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 certainly, you know, I, I think it's probably going to be a more polarized or more challenging environment for them to navigate. Is there anything else on the regulatory side that we may have to worry about as a result of what's happened here? Is there anything else you've looked at? So I think the the separate thing is using that to go after things that are unre- un, unrelated. Hmm. So someone can be like, well, that's why we have to ban Bitcoin mining. You know what I mean? Something that had nothing to do with it, right? Yeah. Especially because, you know, we're also seeing Bitcoin mining bankruptcies, which is, you know, that's that's got obviously less legal issues because, you know, they they did something, they overextended. Most of them are registered securities. You know, these are these are publicly traded yeah. companies. Some of them are private. You know, they, they're, they messed up or they're, you know, they were hit by the industry. Um, they go down. And then so they can combine that with the energy FUD potentially, and say, well, we have to go after Bitcoin too. Are you even surprised with those, with these uh, miners, the stupidity of some of, some of the ways they've over-leveraged themselves by using their, their equipment as collateral at their highest prices? Or do you blame the miners or do you bl- blame the people providing the capital? Well, I think 
it's obviously a new industry, so it's gonna be prone to these problems. Yeah. Um, I, I always would generally put it more on the borrower side. Um, you know, they're the ones that are that are generally generally are suffering the most from this. Um, and they're the ones that in in some cases are going bankrupt because of this. Um, I think the yeah, you know, I think like a lot of us, they probably thought that Bitcoin would go higher before this bull market ended. Maybe it wouldn't go as low as it did now. They wouldn't expect, you know, rates to be risen to like, you know, 4% this year. So the macro headwinds, I think, are a lot harder on them than anyone expected. Um, and then another challenge is that CapEx comes up with a lag. So, you know, China bans mining, hash rate collapses, machines come to the US, building out data centers, and just tons of capital went into to ordering ASICs, building building things. And that, that happens with a lag. Hmm. And so a lot of the, you know, what's challenging for miners right now is that even as the price has collapsed, hash rate is, is near all-time highs because a lot of that delayed, you know, things decisions made a year or two ago are now coming to fruition. And so that's just, it's, it's, it's really rough for all the existing miners, particularly ones with leverage, because if they don't have leverage, you know, they can shut down their highest cost operations. They, you know, it's not, it's, it's painful, but mm. they can muddle through. Um, they can pause operations. They can, you know, um, they all have some degree of, you know, you, you still pay, you know, you're, you're using real estate, you're, you know, you have some sort of fixed expenses, but if you're a very lean, tight operation, you can get through it. Whereas if you use a substantial amount of leverage, that's when you're, you're super vulnerable. This show is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. So one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking me how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments recently reached out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team and help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day and they have been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. They actually started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services. Their in-house fintech incubator is where their teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they will provide resources, training and development to make you successful in this emergent industry. You can learn more about this at crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Next up, it is Ledger. Now recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S+, maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S+. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online Bitcoin casino. 
To find out more about Big Casino, the first casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, today we have Leaden. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, with the recent events in the lender market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only are Ledin sponsor, I'm also a customer of theirs too. So if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. So do you think we need to be a little bit more toxic Bitcoiners? You know, I think you definitely want to call out things when you see them. Mm -hmm. And people have different things they're good at calling out. Right. And yeah. so I, I think people should focus on calling out what they're pretty sure is, is, you know, a problem. What do you think is a problem now? What is left? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, you can call me out if you want. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> well, I'm critical of DeFi in general yes. because I think a lot, well, one, I think I'm critical about the situation where something claims to be a decentralized commodity and is clearly more like a security where you've raised capital and you promise a roadmap and your developers are then trying to do that roadmap to increase the value of the, the token, right? Mm -hmm. So there's obviously a lot of obfuscation around that. I think another thing that has to be keep calling out is that DeFi um, is not as decentralized as it claims to be because it's heavily based on custodial assets, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can build a pseudo decentralized DEX, you can build a pseudo decentralized liquidity provider, but if you're using centralized stable coins that have the option to blacklist, you know, freeze addresses and you're using, you know, wrapped Bitcoin, for example, they can freeze addresses, they can do KYC, they can go, they can lose their keys and, and go insolvent or, you know, secret leverage themselves. It's it's like this apparatus of, of seemingly decentralized activity built around in what is in many cases a, a centralized foundation, which is obfuscation. Hmm. All right, Lynn. Well, listen, that's all very useful, uh, but... I can't let you leave without giving us a bit of a macro outlook. Uh, everything, everything seems to have quieted down a bit, and I can't tell if that's because we've been away and we've been distracted. The FTX thing has distracted us. The uh, it feels like the scariest headlines. Like we've gone through some of the scariest headlines, scariest predictions. Um, but I don't know if I've just not seen it. Like what's? I know you're looking at this all the time. I haven't read your newsletter this month. I'm really sorry. What's going on? So there is some good news temporarily in the macro front, yes. which is, which is, but we'll we're all going to be rich again. No, we'll see here. Well. So <laughs> basically the latest inflation, official inflation print came in a little bit below expectations. Okay. So what was expectations? I don't have the numbers right. in my head right. right now. It came in at 7.7, .7, was it? Yeah. And it's something like 7.9 or expectation, something okay. like on that order. So again, there's like macro nerds that are like, oh, it's 0.2 different than... So it says here that the consensus was 8% and it came in at 7.7. .7. Yeah. Oh, wow. you, so yeah. Point Scroll up, Danny. Uh, yeah. So you, basically we have inflation coming down. Actually, you can, if you see on the top there, you can click on like five years or something. Okay. So basically what we're seeing is that there's a local high in year-over-year -year inflation. 
and it's still at a very high level, but it's now going down rather than up. Okay. Can you just go a bit long? Can you go 10 year, Danny? 25 year? Max? Oh, so we've had crazy other times. Yes. Oh, but I mean, even with what's happening at the moment, the trend. One thing I'll point out though, is that the measurement has changed over time. Okay. And if you use some of those older ways of measuring it, this spike would have been on par with some of those, at least those 70s spikes. Okay, so it could have been 10, 15%. Yeah, I, I would uh, say at least at least low double digits if uh, you measure it the old way. What's kind of interesting, looking at all these previous spikes, most of them, once they've reversed, they continue to reverse. Do you, do you see what I mean? Like, So anyone's listening, we're looking at the previous spikes, inflation in the 40s, 50s, 70s, 80s. Do you see what I mean, though? That, yes. Like once they've reversed course, they continue to reverse Generally, course. at least for a while until you get another spike. That's the thing. But I, I, what I'm saying is it, it's on the way up. There's no, It doesn't seem to be any times when the inflation has gone up. It's dropped and then carried on going up. They've yes. almost always reversed course. Yes. Hopefully. Okay. So is your do you think we might have peaked on inflation? I, well, and we've actually talked about this in, in prior yeah. macro discussions where I think we're entering a disinflationary period yes. within a bigger inflationary trend. And okay. using those prior examples, you would see this both the 40s and the 70s had multiple inflation spikes. And I think we're, we're probably going to have something like that happen again. So we're going to yo-yo around a bit. I think so. Maybe I got rid of this too soon. Like yes. here. Yeah, you had three, in the 40s, you had three different inflation spikes. And in the, in the 70s and well, the late 60s, you had you know two big inflation spikes and you also had that, that smaller initial spikes. You basically had three big they, they kind of come in threes and is basically. that because you think what will happen is uh once inflation drops they will have to reduce interest rates and then they will do more uh, quantitative easing and then we'll see i think that's part of it but i think another big aspect is deglobalization and then especially energy okay right? so we are seeing outright disinflation in things like shipping costs in some of these supply chain bottlenecks, things like that. Um, what's still sticky is things like labor inflation, which if anything, it's a good type of inflation. It means wages are going up. Yeah. It's it's only, you know, obviously you want those to go up faster than, you know, say corporate profits, but it's not how it often works. Um, the thing that's still really sticky, obviously, is energy. Yes. Europe's got their unique situation, but the the more structural problem is that there's been an underinvestment in new energy, both production of of oil and gas, like enough production, as well as infrastructure, pipelines, uh, you know, ships, ports, to get that to where it needs to be, and that's something I, that I think that can drive the second wave, along with uh, a shift in monetary policy. When you say enter a recession, for example, mm -hmm. weaker dollar, something like that, that can give you the potentially the second wave. So most like those prior multiple inflation periods. They generally end after you have a significant capex cycle. So in the, in the 70s, for example, you know they they fixed a lot of those issues. Well, at least politically, they they you know they they ended the oil embargoes, things like that, get the oil flowing again, and then you you enter this period where you've essentially you've done the supply side improvement. So what we're doing now is the Fed is tightening policy, which over time causes some degree of demand destruction. So fewer people buy homes, fewer people sell homes. So some of those people get, you know, some of the people that work in that industry get fired. Um, less less energy and materials go towards construction. Um, we're seeing a lot of tech layoffs because a lot of these companies, they were, a lot of their growth rates were based on super low interest rates and very right. high equity valuations. And then you pay the employees very high equity valuations. 
and so you can keep prices low, so you can grow very fast. And now that you actually have a cost of capital, your equities valuation is much lower. And so you actually have to raise prices to pay your employees better, which then means you grow slower, which then results in even lower equity valuations. So you kind of enter a doom loop until you find what is actually not malinvestment. Yeah. So we're seeing a lot of tech layoffs. But that's a good thing then. Yes, but it's, yes, yes, but it's rough in the, in, while it happens. Um, and so that kind of had to be done. But so basically now we're in a, a slowing economy uh, with demand destruction. And then we've also had things like, you know, the, the, the U.S. government's been selling down their strategic petroleum reserve uh, for likely political reasons. And then you have China has been in this, like, on, we're going on three years now of rolling lockdowns, which reduces their fuel consumption. You know, if you look at the number of flights, for example, it's, it's, it continues to be below baseline, even as some other countries have recovered. So it, it, there's all else being equal, there's less fuel usage. And that combination has, has kept a, somewhat of a lid on global oil prices. Uh -huh. The risk is when you stop drawing down the strategic petroleum reserve. And if you do ease monetary policy, whenever you try to get out of the next recession that we're in, oil's still undersupplied. Mm. And that's where I think you get the next inflation spike. Well, that's the interesting thing is uh, diesel is still 190 in the UK. I mean, it's still very expensive. In the US, so even in the US where we have a much less severe energy problem, we do have diesel shortages. And then specifically our New England area looks a lot like Europe because what they did was they didn't want to build pipelines. They right. wanted to go green and all that. They didn't want to build pipelines. We actually are, some of our biggest gas fields are in the Northeast, right? Everybody thinks of Texas, but mm. for natural gas specifically, out there in like Pennsylvania, we have these really, really big gas fields. It's very close to New England. You can just build a couple short pipelines and there's a dearth of pipelines that you know should go from A to B. They don't. And so what happens is in New England, the demand is still there. They still want electricity and they still want heating, mm. right? So what happens instead is they have to buy LNG, which you're taking the same natural gas and you're freezing it and you're shipping it and then unfreezing it. And it, so it's a way more, it's, it's more expensive. It's more environmentally damaging. And of course, now with Europe trying to buy as much LNG as they can, that puts pressure on global prices. And then there's laws like, they, I don't think they can even buy their own American LNG. It's like they have to like buy like someone else, like, you know, another country's LNG. So that's number one is they, they use the same product, but more expensive and less environmentally friendly. And two, they fall back to burning oil for electricity, yep. which is not ideal. It's both dirtier and generally more expensive. Um, and so you end up ironically having a worse environmental impact because you just didn't do the math. You didn't, you didn't actually have the technology to, to front run your policy. You try to front run the, the technology with policy. And so that's, so we're kind of having a mini Europe potential happening in New England, but we'll right. see. It's, so far, it's, it's not there yet, but we, the United States does have some diesel shortages and, and, and things like that. Yeah, I'll tell you who's a good writer about that, Danny, is I signed up to um, Doomberg's email. Yeah, he's, he covers it great. Yeah, he's uh, incredible. He was explaining to me all of this, and I was thinking, why isn't there no logic within the policy makers to consider this? But yeah. I think, because it's almost like no one's in charge, right? <laughs> the people you assume thought this through, no. They weren't there. They didn't do And so everyone's got these short-term election cycles. Everyone's kind of in their own vested interest. Yeah. Everyone kind of drinks the same Kool-Aid. And of course, there is a difference between actual environmentalism. You know, you, and sometimes you see environmental policies, ironically, cause bad environmental outcomes. Like Europe says, okay, biomass is ESG friendly. So then they go and cut down old growth forests and use that wood. And it's like, that is that is 
Under yeah. what context could that possibly be environmentally friendly? Right? It's, it's obviously a bad carbon sink. It's bad yeah. for biodiversity. It's not the same as like cutting down wood that you, you know, you, you, you can grow trees and then cut them down and keep doing. You have this kind of like managed lumber forest. That's different than go, going out and cutting down just like biodiverse old growth forest. That they, take, they take a very, very long time to regain that state. So if... You said we've had some good news in that we've had a lower uh, CPI print. Yes. Is what comes off the back of that that makes things more positive? So what's come off the back of that is forward expectations of how aggressive the Fed's going to be, like how hawkish yeah. they're going to be, have have subsided a little bit. Um, the, basically, that the projections for how high or how quickly they're going to raise rates can start to moderate okay. as long as that inflation print goes down. And then that, by extension, that makes generally the dollar weaker. Right, so the dollar has been soaring all year compared to most currencies, not the ruble and the, and the Brazilian real, but compared to most currencies, um, the dollar has been going very strong. And we've talked about this on prior shows where a lot of countries and, cor- and international corporations, will have, well, they'll have, well, they'll have dollar-dominated debts. Oh, yeah. And if your liabilities are hardening, right, compared to your cash flows, that's a it's a solvency problem. And so a lot of them then they sell treasuries, and that drives up yields higher, and you create like a doom loop. And so if you start to get a lower inflation print and lower expectations of forward Fed hawkishness, that can make the dollar then weaken because you you're, you have now a, a lower forward projection of the difference in interest rates between, say, the United States and, and Europe and Japan. And you know whatever number that was, say, a week ago is now a little bit lower. And therefore, the dollar that was screaming higher can roll over a little bit. The question is how persistent this is. Does you know mm. does that inflation print keep falling for a while? But like I said, the problem is a lot of it's artificial because we haven't, when people say they don't want inflation, what they generally mean is they want growth that is de- disinflationary. Yes. They want to keep growing without the inflation. That means fixing the supply side. That means having more energy, more cheap energy, um, you know, better supply chains, better manufacturing, whatever the, whatever the bottlenecks may be. Mm. And in this case, instead, we're going, well, we're not doing any, anything about the supply side. So we're going to try to rein in demand. So basically, it's like you're causing recession or near recession. We'll see. I think it's by 2023, recession is is probably likely, but we'll, these things are always not fully clear to quell inflation. So then you have to think ahead and say, okay, what's the second order step? When you're in a recession, what do you do? Then you loosen a little bit at least. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, well, you, if you still haven't made more energy and more energy infrastructure, what's the next step? And I think that's when you get, again... So we need a more abundance of energy. Yes. that's And that and the other issues that we've had, uh, especially in the past, you know, so in the 80s, China started to open up to yep. the world. And that's basically, there's a lot of capital that, you know, because a lot of the inflation in the 70s, for example, there's a lot of reasons for it. It was demand-driven. People were, you know, the baby boomers were buying houses, their first houses. Um, you didn't have a lot of globalization, so it was resulting in, in wage pressures were, were building. And then you also had the oil embargo. So you had an energy shortage, labor shortage, and a lot of demand. Um, and one way they, they kind of broke that, um, in addition to just, you know, essentially putting the economy through a recession like Volcker, you also turned to globalization. And you said, well, we're going to break all these unions. We're going to suppress these wages. We're going to get Mexican labor. We're going to get Chinese labor. Mm. We're going to do all this. And so you basically have a situation where because of various like iron curtains, you had impoverished labor ready to work and had large pools of capital that want cheap labor. And so for decades, Boom. decades, yeah, you basically said, okay. And some people benefit, some people get harmed by that. 
and it, you know, it's, it depends where you are in the stack. And, and even in certain countries, you can be hurt or harmed by this. And the problem is we've kind of tapped into all that, right? So once, once China became a significant rising power, one is their demographics are peaking. Yeah. So just naturally, they're already going to be less able to be a, a you know, at least direct, like continue to be a cheap supplier at the same on increasing rate they have been. Yeah. Um, and there's also, of course, geopolitical tensions. And then you had, I mean, also part of the globalization was then the fall of Soviet Union in the early 90s. So you had a ramp up in their energy production with, with more capitalist type of, or at least, you know, you know, crony capitalist, but still basically more competent capital running some of these energy companies, mm -hmm. able to increase output significantly. And so Europe benefited from, you know, so the United States benefited from cheap Chinese goods. Europe did too, to a somewhat lesser degree, but then they also benefited from all that cheap Russian energy. Hmm. Um, and so now with Russia's, you know, production potentially not going to keep going up the rate it has with their infrastructure now damaged and or shut off, depending on which pipeline you're looking at, they can't just magically snap their fingers and put all that gas in China. So some yeah. of that just has trouble until they build more LNG, until they build more pipelines. Uh, Europe has to build more pipelines and, and LNG. Nuclear. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's rough. And so all of that is now deglobalization. And so I think we are entering probably a decade, and we've seen now some of it, of periods of either more scarcity or higher prices. Right. Sometimes at the same time, sometimes you, they're almost like a trade-off where it's like, if you try to control prices, then you can get more scarcity. If you don't try to control prices, you might have what you want, but you have to, might have to pay a lot for it. And so I think that that's, it's going to be a, I think up and a down. A wild period. decade. Yes. All right. Well, listen, thanks, Lynn. One Always more, one more crazy FTX thing that I've just seen. Uh, Danny said it, you said it would happen, sorry. If you have a bank account, Link to XDX US, change your bank account password and stop sharing data immediately. Blows a screenshot of my bank account, which they tried accessing 40 minutes ago. Would you, what? I mean, I don't know if that's data or like they're the looking for data, but that's wild. I'm sure that no um, watchers of this fine podcast would have an account at FTX, would they? I have no idea. Yes, they will do. <laughs> they okay. will do, sadly. I think it's a good time to shout out basically. To the extent that you work with counterparties, make sure you trust the counterparties and that they have high integrity. And two, I think it's a good reminder that if you haven't learned how to self-custody your Bitcoin, there's, there's you know, sole custody. And then there's also, for example, you can do collaborative multi-sig custody. Mm -hmm. And there are various ways, depending on how technical you want to get, to self-custody some or all of your Bitcoin. Lynn, thank you. You're amazing. We're not sure we're not going to see you next. When are we doing We'll find out. It'll be a new year sometime. Yeah. We'll sort it out. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thank you for listening to What Bitcoin Did. I hope you got value out of this interview with Lynn. One thing we didn't touch on the interview was the obvious fact that there are masses of people who have had their investments and perhaps their savings wiped out. I've had people dropping me DMs and emails. And look, it's really, really depressing listening to these stories. I had it back in 2017, just with the market crashing, how some people had leveraged up or bought some stupid shitcoin and lost all their money. I even remember getting onto a phone call with um, a family in New Zealand just to go through what they've been through. And I feel we're here again. And you know, we push Bitcoin as a savings technology, as the future of money. And yet we've got these scams and these crypto projects that have destroyed people's lives and it's not cool. And as I said in the intro, I'm angry about it. I'm upset about it. And 
I don't know what the answer is yet. I was on a Spaces the other day and somebody was talking about how do we deal with this? And I was like, look, crypto isn't going away. If you want to get rid of it, it would have to be regulated away. But most Bitcoiners don't like regulation. So in an environment with no regulation, we're going to have these casinos and these things can happen again and again. So I'm just going to focus on the mission, which is Bitcoin, getting the best people on the show and just spreading knowledge. That's all I can do. I do want to touch on something else. The blowback from this will affect many within the industry. And I've obviously been caught up in this as one of my previous sponsors was BlockFi, which I backed from, I think they started sponsoring me in 2018. And it's a product and service I genuinely believed in. And they did provide a good service to me and customers for years. I could not envisage that four years later that they would be the victim of a fraud from the likes of 3AC and FTX and that would essentially destroy their business. I, th I talked to Danny about this. I said, what if in this scenario that there was never really a deal with BlockFi that actually FTX just wanted to custody their funds so they could steal them? And it appears like this is maybe what's happened. I'm waiting for that to unwind. But listen, I do sympathize with anyone who's been caught up with this, who's lost Bitcoin. People have lost their jobs. People have lost their companies. My email is always open. I will listen to anyone. Please get in touch if I can help in any way. I, I will be happy to hear from you. So stay safe out there. And please do, let's focus on the mission. Let's focus on spreading Bitcoin. Let's focus on spreading self-custody. And let's focus on spreading the knowledge of what this technology can do. If you want to get in touch, my email is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And I will get back to you as soon as I can.